0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'd like to start by sharing a a personal story. So all scientists have, I think, a memory, uh, a story that they can go back to when they think about how they became interested in science, and I wanted to share mine. This is mine here. These are baby leatherback turtles that are hatching from a nest not far away from where I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And when I was a child there, I always found fascinating that these animals are coming out of the nest and they haven't been to turtle school and they know exactly where to go. (laughs) They're beelining it towards the ocean. There's something really uh, profound happening here also, very important for the turtle, but invisible to our eyes which is that these turtles are forming a memory. They're forming a memory of this beach. These are leatherback turtles. They grow up to be about the size of a Volkswagen, about nine feet long, and they will travel the world's oceans, and decades later, when they have to make what is perhaps the most important decision in a turtle's life, which is where it's gonna lay its eggs, it will remember this beach, because that's where it was born, and it'll come back to it and lay its eggs at that place. So with that, I like to uh, coarse grain behaviors and, and essentially group them into innate or hardwired behaviors like this animal's capacity to know to go towards the ocean when they're born, and experiential memories like their capacity to remember this specific vision, come back to it. Now, innate behaviors are facilitated by the developmental program that leads to the formation of the neural circuit architectures, and experiential memories are facilitated by a pretty complex interplay between that architecture that develops and the environment that the animal is experiencing, what the animal is seeing. But I wanna emphasize that both of them are ultimately facilitated by the architecture of the nervous system. So what do I mean by the architecture of the nervous system? And this is essentially what I mean. If you look at a mouse hippocampus, for example, you'll see this incredibly exquisite organization of the neurons. This is actually an image here using a technique called Brainbow by Jeff Lickman at Harvard. this organization raises all sorts of interesting questions. One of them, which my lab is interested on, is how is it that this organization is actually established? And in thinking about how this organization is established, if you take, for example, the case of the human brain, you have about 80 billion neurons. That's, about, that's more neurons in, the, in a healthy human brain that you have uh, stars in the Milky Way, and about 100 trillion synapses. And during development, you have hundreds of millions of neurons almost simultaneously during development specifying fate growing out axons, connecting to each other, finding each other in a very specific way to lay out this amazing architecture. So how does that happen? What are the organizing principles that rules the, this, this organization that ultimately underpin human behaviors? Now we look at this question and we don't do so in, in, uh, in turtles or humans or mice actually, we do so in a worm. It's a tiny nematode called C. elegans, it's over here. One of the characteristics that, that C. elegans has that we really like is that it's transparent. So it allows us to look at the organization of the nervous system, which is very finely organized, as you can see here. Now, I wanna acknowledge that C. elegans is far simpler than than a healthy human brain. So instead of 100 billion neurons, C. elegans has exactly 302 neurons. And instead of 100 trillion synapses, C. elegans has approximately 7,000 synapses. So some of you might be wondering, how is it that we can extract any useful information out of such a simple system that will tell us anything useful about a complex organ like the human brain? And to address this, i like to use a quote by Diderot that said, a worm is only a worm, but that only means that the marvelous complexity of its organization is hidden from us by its extreme smallness. Now, I'm not as eloquent as Diderot, so I'll say it in a wordier way. When nature finds a solution to a problem, it recycles that solution over and over again. So the fundamental principles that allow for the proper functioning of the nervous system in this tiny worm are not unlike the fundamental principles that facilitate the functioning of our own brains. And to exemplify that, I'll just give a few examples. Studies done in this worm by other groups, ranging from the development of neurons, like sulfate specification or axon guidance, to uh, fundamental physiology having to do with the biogenesis of neurotransmitters or neurotransmitter release, how neurons talk to each other, to even systems levels examination of sensory perception and behavior, all done in this nematode, have actually shed light on important and fundamental aspects about how our own brains and brains in higher metal work. So it's actually, it's really true that evolution kind of conserves these principles. So using that as a foundation, we wanted to, to essentially examine this question of how this nervous system comes together. And both our studies and the studies that I just mentioned benefited from the fact that this is also the only animal for which we have a wiring diagram. Now we're hoping this is gonna change soon and you're gonna hear other talks today that are working very hard to make this you know, I think of the past, and we're very happy that, that that's the case. But today, this is the only animal for which we have that wiring diagram. So, what is the wiring diagram? It's the ability to know where each neuron is, essentially the morphology of the neuron, and what that neuron is connecting to. And we use this wiring diagram to examine two fundamental questions. One of them is how is it that the brain of this animal is organized? And the second one is how, is the, how does this organization? comes out during development. Now, we've had the wiring diagram for about 30 years. The, the first wiring diagram was done in 1986. And we still have these two questions that we need to address. And I'll explain what we know and what we don't know in the next slide. So the way that that wiring diagram was originally done was that somebody took, a, a group of scientists led by John White, took this animal and essentially fixed it and sliced it like a salami, so imagine that you're slicing all over the animal here, and then you get these, these uh, cross sections, and then they did electron microscopy on those cross sections, and by segmenting each of the neurons, which we, we are putting here in different colors, by hand, this is 1986, they segmented them by hand, they were able to recreate the connectivity map for every single cell. Now this was, this was incredibly powerful for the field, and it has benefited our studies, but I just want to emphasize that all of this was, it wasn't digitalized. It was all done by hand. So you could go, neuron by narrow, and you could kind of tell the shape and who it connected to, but we didn't have a systems level understanding about how this happened. Until recently, where uh, Scott Emmons at Albert Einstein University and his student Steve Cook, actually went in and did the same segmentation that John White did 30 years ago, but with computers. What that allows us to do is to be able to know who's neighboring who in a quantitative way, in a way that we can actually analyze. And we can analyze using tools not unlike the tools that are being used by companies like Twitter and Facebook to, inter- to understand interactions between human beings. So our collaboration included computational scientists Smita and Alex, and what they did is that they took that data and, and we worked together with them in using clustering algorithms. Again, similar to the clustering network algorithms that are used to understand uh, uh, personal interactions, and cluster neurons with similar contact profiles, so essentially neurons that are contacting each other as they're traveling together in the nervous system in fascicles, and did iterative clustering to understand how, how that structure of the brain is organized. And you end up with with essentially a flow diagram like this, where in one corner you have all the neurons, and these clustering algorithms iteratively bring them together. So this different clustering of the different subgroups of neurons that eventually cluster into these larger families, what it represents, what underlies that, is real biology of how these neurons are interacting with each other. Real biology that, we, that was inaccessible before we were able to digitize these, these programs. And we're capable of overlaying that on top of the original EM micrographs. Each of these uh, colors here that we have placed represent a community of neurons that that are interacting together more than the other neurons. And I'm gonna just walk you through the brain of the animal and this is gonna be playing a movie so that you can see how the different communities are actually snaking and how they relate to each other and how they come together. As this movie plays, I'll explain that what I'm showing you here is actually reproducible across the animals for which we have connectomes. So this has been a really fun project because we were able to um, work with the computational biologist and inform the algorithms with the biology and use the algorithms to inform our own biology. We were able to find four main bundles that account for 83% of the whole connectome. So now we have a pretty good idea about how these different brain regions are organized. And these neighborhoods, I'll just mention that they reveal important biological insights. So there's a reason why they're organized this way that have to do with development and function. And I'm you know, I could give a one-hour talk about this, so I'm going to use one example to, to, to present this. And I'll talk about how these neighborhoods led to insights about how this organization is actually established during development. And this gets to a fundamental question that is a blind spot in the field, which is how do you go from a group of cells in an embryo to this organized connectome in the worm? And so this is essentially a question that we wanted to understand. And the reason that this has been a blind spot is that for many organisms, this part of the development happens inside, like for example in mammals, it happens inside the uterus. So the the organisms are essentially inaccessible. In C. elegans, they lay eggs, so the organism is accessible, but there were a number of challenges that have prevented in the past like four or five decades to image embryonic neurodevelopment. So this is a pretty large blind spot. We have this information, but we didn't know how this was happening. The reason that imaging neurodevelopment in C. elegans was challenging were multifold. One of them is that embryos when they're inside the egg they're, very quick, they're moving very quickly. So if you're looking for example at the development of a single neuron using even the fastest microscopy that we had available at the time which is spinning disk microscopy for the aficionados in the audience. This is a single neuron and you get a motion blur where it looks like four neurons. Because the animal is moving and you're taking different pictures so it looks like you're taking four neurons there. The other problem that is hard to capture in an image is the animals just die. So when you're imaging for prolonged periods of time, which is what you want to do to be able to capture these different neurodevelopmental events, many of the embryos just die, so you end up taking snapshots at different points in development that you have to stitch together later. And neurons are actually pretty thin. These are, they're near the diffraction limit of light. So, and, and they're traveling, you know they're traveling in ways that are not convenient for imaging they're not traveling in planes they don't care about our imaging needs they're actually snaking in through the whole nervous system so we needed methods that allow us to have good resolution not just in two dimensions but in all three dimensions so to address this we established a collaboration with with a fabulous microscopist harry schroff and his team of scientists and Harry, essentially, you know, we had these discussions together, and, we, and, and, and he came up with the design of this microscope. I won't go into the nuts and bolts about how these microscopes work, but what I will tell you is the aspects of this microscope that makes it usable for our studies. This microscope is called a light sheet microscope, which essentially means that instead of imaging a single point of light like many other microscopes do, it creates a whole sheet of light. So it's much faster than other than, than regular microscopes because you're it's like like in Star Trek when they scan you versus scanning you point by point. So so it's faster. It's it, because it's faster. It exposes the animal to less light, so less phototoxicity. Also, the way that light is generated to be able to image these animals exposes the animals to less light. And the other aspect of this is that for, for the microscopies in the audience or people that have done microscopy, they will recognize that when you take an, a three-dimensional image of an object in a microscope, the, the resolution in, in, in XY is always really good, but when you turn it, the resolution in C is always bad. And that has to do with just the physics of, of, of light, which I'm not going to go into. But I will say that X, Y, and Z is relative to how you're standing. So you guys right now are in my Z. But if I was standing this way, that would be my Z. So if I, were, if I had two images where the Z varied, then I could combine them to essentially have an isotropic image. So if I, could, if I look at this object like this, this is my X, Y. And then I look at it this way, and this is my X, Y. And I combine those two images. It, it's the same resolution in all three axes. And this is essentially what we're doing with this microscope because we have two cameras. This one, this one illuminates, this one image, and then they take turns. You end up with two images that you can then fuse. And the, the Z of this axis is different from this one. So again, I'm, I'm discussing this superficially because I know Phil Keller will discuss this in more detail. So we have this microscope working in my lab, and this is a slide that I put here just to acknowledge two institutions the Marine Biological Laboratories and the University of Puerto Rico, which were meeting places where, where um, technologies like, like and microscopies like, like people from Harry's group and biologists from my group were able to come together and exchange ideas. And I think these places are going to be increasingly more important for, uh, for interdisciplinary collaborations necessary to address these problems. So... What can we do this with this? So this is actually uh, the brain of the animal here in an embryo, the tail, the head, and that's the brain, that ring that you're seeing there. And I'm gonna play a movie where we can actually see the development of this animal in real time. And you can, this is, I mean, this is, as a biologist, this is spectacular that we can see this. You're gonna see the animal starts to move. It starts to twitch as the nervous system comes online. But even when it's twitching, you can get very crisp images. Now, if you look at subsets of neurons, which we're gonna do here using subcellular markers, or, or markers that are more restricted, you can still see the, you can see neurites, specific neurites growing into the brain of the animal. This is all taken again in live animals. And essentially, you can stop it at any time and you can rotate it. So, it, so I'm doing two dimensional projections because I'm using a screen, but these are, these are three dimensional data sets. You can see the resolution is very good in all angles that you look at it. And you can continue the movie. So, this gives us unprecedented access to the events that are leading to the formation of this nerve ring. And then we had another collaboration that was really enabling which is that in C. elegans, we know the lineage of every single cell. We've known that since, since the animal was developed as a, as a model organism. That's how the original studies of programmed cell death were done. And this person, this is Zirong Bao, he's a scientist at Sloan Kettering, who's a computational biologist and a developmental biologist. And what I'm gonna be playing here is an embryo that is in a four cell stage now this is like playing a movie that you know what's gonna happen because we know the lineage. So we know for each one of these cells, we know who their progeny is gonna be because those studies have been done before. But what he did is that he trained a computer to be able to recognize this in real time. So as the animal is developing, the computer can keep track of all of these nuclei and it knows what each cell is gonna become. So why is this important to us? It's important for two reasons. One of them is because when we're marking neurons, as we're gonna be doing here, we can tell their identity because if we have nuclei that we're labeling in the background in red, then we can keep, we can keep the identity of every, every single one of these neurons that are emerging. But the other aspect is that we have an internal coordinate system. As the neurons are growing out and crossing the different nuclei, we know where, the, where each neuron is. So if we take different embryos and we're imaging different embryos, we can overlay them because we essentially have a multi point internal coordinate system. Does that make sense? Okay, so so what can we do with that? And here I'm gonna summarize um, the work of a postdoc in my lab, Mark Moyle. This is five years of work summarizing one slide. So essentially what what Mark did is he was interested in identifying the pioneering neurons that lead to the formation, that trailblaze the formation of the brain of the animal. So he looked in embryos, he labeled all membranes, and he found the first membranes that are formed that are part of the brain. He traced them back to these cells here. We're pseudo-coloring here so you can see them. Then if he looked at the nuclei, he can actually identify the, by name and last name those specific cells. Then he he can image, as I mentioned before, the development of the brain, so he can take these cells and kill them. And the hypothesis is, if you kill them because they're the first cells, if the first cells are important, then you shouldn't be able to develop a brain. And we get these brainless animals in which we cannot see. Essentially, the brain is greatly abrogated, so these neurons are actually very important. And it turns out, when we look back in the maps that we have created with the computational biologists, that these pioneer cells are actually the cells that are... (coughs) Uh, that are here in purple, and they're, they're like seam cells. They're, they're, like, they're cells that are holding together the whole nerve ring. And with that, I'd like to to essentially bring into your attention how we can both look at the, how the brain is organized and how the organization is established during development. And I'll finish by saying that what we have been able to do with this and our aspiration is to create what would be the first map of metal zone neurodevelopment for any animal. So we're systematically tracking all of the decisions of these neurons and creating this virtual embryo that allows examination of all of these decisions in the context of the developing embryo, which we think will be enabling for neuroscience. And with that, I'll finish by thanking the people that did the work, this modeling crew, and you for listening to me today. Thank you.